Welcome to the Health Design Podcast. I am your host, Moyes Jiwa. My guest on the podcast today is Lillian Lee. At 34 years of age, she was diagnosed as having lung cancer. In this episode, she speaks about her journey from diagnosis to treatment and subsequently as an advocate for lung cancer patients. It is a great honor to introduce you to Lillian Lee. You're very welcome to the show, Lillian. We're delighted to be speaking with you and delighted that you look so well. We'll come to that in a moment. You know, Lillian, when most people develop a cough and they find a lump in their neck, it tends to be a benign thing. But that was not the case for you. And I'd like to talk about how you came to have uh, the diagnosis that you're going to tell us about. So it was around my 34th birthday and we were enjoying life. I had a little toddler of three, three years old at the time. I, I had a really sore neck one day and I was feeling around my neck and I found a lump above my left collarbone. I had just recovered, well, recovering from a cold or what I thought it was a cold. I was still coughing at the time. I felt the lump and because it was my 34th birthday, I saw a lot of my family for, to celebrate my birthday. And I asked my, my family and various members had, had thoughts about the lump. And uh, basically they had a, a little conference in front of me of what, what uh, step I should take next. And in the end, I, I went to get an ultrasound. And for convenience sake, my dad ordered it for me. When the sonographer saw what was there, he went out and got the radiologist. The radiologist came in and felt the lump and said, oh, look, you know, it's borderline. It's one centimetre. We might just do a, a biopsy just in case, but it feels fine. It's moving. It's fine, you know. And then he decided instead of doing a fine needle biopsy, he decided to do a core needle biopsy. It was my dad who got the report. He called me while I was on the train and, and asked me where I was. And I said, I was on the train on the way home. And he said, oh, call me back when you get home. And I said, oh, no, that means there's, it's bad news. And I need you to tell me now, you know, what, what, what it says. And he read out the report and it said primary lung cancer. That completely changed my world. I, I got scans to confirm that it was lung cancer. Everything happened really quickly. I had pericardial effusion, so I had surgery. Yeah, it was quite overwhelming being a mum, looking to grow our family and having dreams of so much and having plans that, that were shattered. That was really difficult. How long ago was that? So that was almost six years ago. It had spread. So metastasized lung cancer, as we know, the outcome is quite poor. But now looking back, <laughs> it's pretty amazing. Pretty amazing that I'm about to celebrate my six-year anniversary. It's fantastic. It's not just amazing. I was very blessed in, in the medical team that I had. The medical team, you know, my oncologist spoke to the pathologist and they, they did more tests than what probably most oncologists would have done at the time. And they found a very rare mutation that was driving the tumour. And because of that, I was able to access target therapy 
But because it was so rare and, and it was pretty much a new discovery at that time, the drug that I on was very expensive. It wasn't subsidised by the government on the PBS. And while it's approved to be on, to be on the market, it costed something like 8,000 Australian dollars a month. So almost $100,000 a year for that drug. And were you paying for that out of your own pocket? I was very, very lucky. So Rare Cancers Australia was the, the organisation that helped me. They were able to negotiate my first month of, of the um, medication for free if I put my page, you know, my story on, on a crowdfunding page. And through that, through the generosity of so many people, people I knew and people I didn't know, we were able to raise a lot of funds to cover, to cover yeah. that drug. You were lucky in that you had family who literally had a case conference at your kitchen table about what should have been done in you. Then your dad, presumably a doctor, ordered a test for you and was able to help you through that period of having the diagnosis. But that's, of course, is not the case for many, many people. Exactly. And I'm sure that you've met people like that in the course of the time that you've been in the healthcare system. What is it generally like for somebody, a young person with a rare cancer with metastatic disease? I have known now quite a few people who basically were diagnosed almost on their deathbed mm. because the symptoms are so vague, aren't they? So a cough that doesn't go away, if your life is busy and you're a mum or a dad running around children, you're not going to notice that you have been coughing for quite some time. You, you just get on with life as a lot of us do. And by the time people find out that something serious is happening, often it's, it's very late. And I have GPs in my family. I think I completely appreciate that coughs are day in, day out, right? As a family doctor, you, you see coughs all the time. And by far, the large majority of the cases are not very serious. It, it's a common cold or, or you know. And so it, it, I'm very mindful that it is very difficult for a family doctor to pick up something. And I think a, a, a big part of it is, is um, patient advocacy too, right? Patients advo- self-advocating, saying, actually, no, this is I, I suspect this is something more and telling the doctor what your symptoms are and going to the doctor and, and seeing the doctor and getting advice. And yeah, I think it's, it's, it's very hard, but I think now more so than before, places like Cancer Australia has now guidelines for lung cancer diagnosis, right? And I think, yeah, I think there's, there's more and more education and more awareness. You were 34 years of age. How long had you had the cough by the time you spoke to the family? I can't tell you, Mm. to be honest. Mm. I knew I had a cold, but it was spring. Yeah. I also have hay fever. And so occasionally I do get postnatal drip. Coughs is such a normal part of life that I I wasn't keeping track of how many weeks I was coughing. I was coughing quite a bit, but I, I didn't have time to worry about it, to be honest. I wish I did. But when you have a little toddler. <laughs> Looking back, it doesn't sound like there was anything that you would have 
recognized as being serious even before that point where you would have said there's something desperately wrong, I need to get medical advice. For that's the diagnostic end of the journey, which was difficult. What happened after that? Because certainly you got Rare Cancers Australia, thankfully coming to your aid. What was it like being in the specialist sector? I I responded really well to the drug in terms of the tumours shrinking quite rapidly. The tumours were responding well and we even went away to Fiji. I was feeling very hopeful, meeting people online, understanding that, you know, target therapy can actually do really well for, for a lot of people for quite some time. And so, yeah, feeling very hopeful, but unfortunately my liver couldn't tolerate the drug. And so I went through months of trying to find a tolerable dose. And that was really difficult because in the end, I couldn't take that drug anymore. And I thought that was, that was it. I thought that was, you know, I had to go on chemotherapy and, and my chances of survival were a lot lower. And I went on a website called Inspire mm. and I met a lot of patients with similar experiences to me. I was so lucky to meet a wonderful medical researcher and happens to have the same rare mutation as mine. And I got to know him and understand he he taught me a lot about the mutation that we have and the types of treatment that were being experimented on what you know what trials were available around the world and he said to me go to Melbourne get on try and get on this Facebook and answered all my questions about is that even possible can I fly interstate with a toddler carry on with life and participate in the clinical trial And yeah, I was very, very blessed to to have met him because he gave me all the answers that I I needed and the confidence to then take that information to my oncologist. And before my oncologist even had the chance to raise it as as an option, I said, "Can I can I fly down to Melbourne and and join this and try and get into this trial?" Since then, been on that trial now for over five years. I'm doing well on it. That's, that's fantastic. And it's interesting you talk about Inspire and that side of things, because really this is about taking agency, isn't it? You may, your oncologist may not have known about this. I mean, chances are he did, but he may not or she may not have known about this. This is really a theme in a lot of our podcasts where patients have taken agency. They have done their own research and they have found the solution to their problem. Tell us something about that side of things. Have you heard those kind of stories uh, in the course of the last few years? Absolutely. I think we're very blessed to start with to have the ability to do that, right? To be able to connect with others and understand the language and learn about science. And But, but those of us who do have that capacity or, or are lucky enough to have that, it's so empowering to just be able to talk to other people that, that have a similar mutation and to learn from them what they've learned over the years. And, and these forums are very well moderated. So Inspires was, I remember back in those days, it was moderated by, by an oncologist who gave so much of his time and energy to that so generously. And all of that is accessible to us around the world for free. Quite powerful. And I, 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 
could almost say I owe my life to that forum, that time who at that time someone in across on the other side of the globe was able to share with me information that I needed right at that moment to now allow me to be alive six years later, you know, five years later. It, it's quite amazing and I'm so grateful for that. And as far as based in the US, so this is a US site, and here they are telling you about a trial in Melbourne, Australia, on the other side <laughs> of the earth, which is amazing because would you have dreamt that there was a, a treatment available, an airplane flight away from you? No, not at all. I think at that time, information about clinical trials was really limited. And I did a lot of research. I'm lucky enough to be someone who can, right? But even so, I, it was so hard for me to understand what the protocols meant. You know, what did it actually mean to participate in a trial? And once you know that, how do I even get onto a trial? It took me so long to work that out. There's no enroll here, fill in a form. It's this hidden process that medical professions, the professionals would know about it, but the patient doesn't. It was through conversation and through connection that gave me the answers and gave me the confidence. In terms of your own journey then, first of all, we are thrilled that you were here to tell your story. That goes without saying. You are making a, a difference in other ways too. You're doing a lot of advocacy. Can you talk a little bit about what that is? I remember starting to feel well and <laughs> quite funny, before I, I was feeling, well, while I was going through that journey of dose reduction and joining a child, I think when things are rocky in life, you try to grasp onto whatever normality you can grasp onto. So I kept working. I was still working and <laughs> thinking about that was a, a bit silly. But, you know, I was really trying to keep my life together where everything else was, was being shattered. And when I was starting to feel well, I decided to take leave and I took long service leave. And during that time, I was reading a bit about lung cancer and funding. And what I found really shook me to the core in terms of the injustice of, of that. And that really drove me to, into advocacy. Prior to that, I, I was quite aware of the, the inequity in terms of access to, to drugs. So a drug that, that I w first went on was available for a, a more, a less uh, rare mutation of lung cancer years before mine became available on, on the scheme. And a treatment for a rarer cancer seems to take a lot longer to, to go to be subsidized than the same treatment for a, a less rare cancer. And it's still the case now, but I, I remember the shock of finding out how much that medicine costed. And, and so I did a bit of advocacy with Rare Cancers Australia about access, timely access to, to medication that are life-saving medication. And then I went on from there and, and went into lung cancer advocacy, knowing that there's also inequity in, in research funding in lung cancer. And I think throughout the last few years, I just, I just went with it. If an opportunity comes up where I can speak about the inequity and try and make a difference, I, I did. The lung cancer advocacy work, you, you start wondering why some cancers are funded better than others and how do we 
as a horror cancer, how can we learn from the other cancers and, and try and increase awareness? And a lot of that work came down to stigma. A lot of that work gave me an understanding of why there might be inequity in some cancers. And stigma is a big factor to that. I, for the last years, well, since I was diagnosed, whenever I tell a stranger that I have lung cancer, most people would say to me, oh, did you smoke for long? Or how long did you smoke for? And, and I just think, you know, nobody asked that for any other diseases. You don't say that you had a you know, heart attack a few years ago and people would say, well, how many Big Macs have you eaten? You know, like that's not a question most people ask when you say you have something really serious. Usually people show compassion, but for some reason people want to know the cause of, of lung cancer first rather than showing compassion. And so, I do, yeah, I do a lot of advocacy in that, in, in awareness building. And, and i so lucky to, to not have a smoking history. And so it's easy for me at the beginning to say, well, I've never smoked. But now I just, I don't think that even matters. I probably shouldn't have even said it just then. You know, it, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. I should, I should get the same compassion as everybody else. You're absolutely right. Lung cancer in particular gets this bad rep because people think it's your fault. You smoked. You caused the problem in the first place. And of course, it's one of the reasons why many smokers with coughs don't go to see their doctor early because they think, oh, it's my fault. I've been smoking and so I deserve to whatever bad thing happens. Of course, utter nonsense. And in your case, the sad thing about it is that you did none of those things. And you were a young, healthy, fit, somebody who's looking after yourself, and yet it happened. And that's the reality of lung cancer. There are lots of smokers who don't get lung cancer. It's not for that reason that they, this disease strikes. There are many, many other factors at play. And of course, the message, the non-smoking message has been, if you smoke, you will get this horrible thing. And I think that narrative, you know, I think the narrative needs to change. We also need to acknowledge that the it, it's been that campaign of smoking causes lung cancer that has probably saved a lot of lives too. I think there are two different narratives. You, you've got cigarettes can or smoking can cause a lot of different cancers, something like 14 or 18 of them. I can't remember how many, but smoking causes a lot of different cancers and it causes other illnesses. Unfortunately for lung cancer patients, lung cancer was the one that got picked on. But at the same time, I think that, that those campaigns did, did a lot to change people's smoking habits and, and made people aware about smoking and, and probably saved a lot of lives. On the flip side of that, though, once someone is sick, that link back to smoking is, is what's causing the problem. I've spent so many years thinking, well, you can't stop educating the public about that but at the same time you can't blame those who have the illness it's a bit like if you have two children and one of them was climbing something and you say to them don't climb on that and you'll fall and, and, and hurt yourself and and they fall and hurt themselves do you yell at them just to show the others that they shouldn't do it either or do you actually go there and be compassionate to that that child who fell 
I don't have the answers. I think, of course, you need to go and, and, and show compassion, but I, I don't know that society does that well yet. And so a lot of what I do is around lung cancer because survival hasn't been very high and I'm well enough and I feel like it's not, it's not an obligation, but I feel like I'm, I have a responsibility to give back. I do a lot of work in research advocacy because I'm here because of research. Clinical trials has given me my life over the last few years and I can see my daughter grow up and yeah, I, I give back to, to researchers because what they do is so important, not just for the people of tomorrow, but for the people of today. Where can people find you, Lillian, and the work that you do? Well, I, I can be found on Twitter at Project Breath. I don't have a website. I don't, no. <laughs> I did have a website, but I don't anymore. What we will do is in our show notes, we will actually put any links that you would like us to put and any contact uh, details that you may wish to share with people. It's been an absolute joy speaking to you. What I picked up from what you've said is the, the need to present persistent symptoms to a practitioner, regardless of your age. If you've got persistent symptoms, if you've got a lump or bump that you are concerned about, this is something that regardless of what you may think is causing it, you should seek medical advice about. The second thing, of course, about stigma, the whole issue of stigma and smoking, the fact that some people get cancer because they're smoking, some people get cancer because they've not been smoking, but the cause is never something we should focus on. We should be focusing on the issue that that person is dealing with. This is a huge blow to their lives, and this is something we should be compassionate about. And the, the last thing is really access to drugs and the need for advocacy and the need for rare cancers to get a Guernsey when it comes to access to drugs, which are available to treat other conditions. Why not the rare cancers and why are they being excluded? That is a message that we hear loud and clear. Thank you so much, Lillian. Thank you. The other thing that really struck me was the number of health professionals that ask about smoking. And I think there's, I think there's an important point to make about that. I think hospital systems, when you go as a cancer patient, you go through so many different points of contact in, in the hospital system. And for so long now, it gets, it, it frustrates me actually when people keep asking you whether you are a smoker and how sensitive that is to someone with lung cancer. And I see the point, I understand the point of why people ask because it's for, for the patient's well-being that they ask, but there must be a way where there's just one place where people can go to see if that person is a smoker or not without asking them over and over again. And that is a good point. And I think that you're right. It's almost like emphasizing the, the whole stigma. Everybody knows that this was a bad thing. Why didn't you know this? Yeah. <laughs> yes, almost. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I just want to say thank you so much for having patience on your show. I think it's really, it, it gives us a voice. And I think, yeah, I just want to say thank you to you. You're very welcome. Uh, if it is not for patience, then why are we in this business at all? Thank you. The Journal of Health Design. Better health by design. Visit us at thejournalofhealthdesign.com.